The Money Show. Other people's money. Others People's Money brought to you by Old Mutual. Get fast business funding in a flash with SME Go, powered by Old Mutual. Old Mutual Life Assurance Company, SA Limited, is a licensed FSP and life insurer. Well, tonight's guest on Other People's Money um, has made a living out of talking about other people's money. First, as a financial journalist, one of the smartest in South Africa in the last two decades, uh, and then went off to start his own own enterprise. It is called Intellidex. His name is Stuart Theobald. He is the co-founder and executive chairman at Intellidex, despite his youthful complexion and his very few years on the planet. Um, he's done rather well for himself. Went to Rhodes University, the London School of Economics. He's got degrees in finance and philosophy and economics and a PhD, a PhD, Dr. Theobald. Dr. Theobald. Um, you should really call yourself Dr. Theobald. There'll be a, f- a future for you um, in politics if you do that, Stuart. How are you doing this evening? Hi, Bruce. Maybe, maybe on the other hand, I might be called on an aeroplane for uh, urgent news <laughs> and not be able to do anything. No, exactly. We don't need that. Um, uh, there was a, a Tony Grogan, great uh, cartoonist uh, from the Eastern Cape, um, had a series of books called L.A. Law in the days of the... TV series L.A. Law, but his was L.A. Law for L-A-L-O-R-E, um, Lower Albany Law. And the two farmers leaning against a, a fence talking to a guy, a very nerdy-looking individual, and they said to him, are you a real doctor or are you just one of those things from Rhodes? Um, so uh, you got your PhD from the LSE, though, you see, so you're a pro- it's almost like a real doctor. Now, how is London treating you? You are in the United Kingdom this evening, I believe. I am in the United Kingdom, but I'm uh, visiting uh, Joburg next week for the first time in a year and a half, which is going to be very exciting. Uh, so looking forward to that. Isn't it exciting that the world is opening up again? It's been a hell of a 18 months, especially when you're trying to run a business across geographies in the way that you are. It's been uh, very interesting. Uh, in some ways, I am kind of surprised at how, I guess, well we've managed Uh but on the other hand, I also feel it that things are kind of fraying and you just want to get face to face with people. Uh, you want to work in an environment in which you're just surrounded by colleagues uh, just so that you can overhear everyday chatter. At the moment when everything is a Zoom or a Teams call, all your conversations are kind of deliberate and, and purpose driven. And you don't get to have the casual chats that I think are really important, particularly in a work environment and particularly for, you know, younger, more junior staff who uh, are still developing. And, and those sort of casual chats are crucial. I mean, and you understand the power of the casual chat from your many years in journalism. Of course, some of the best stories come from the casual chats where somebody either deliberately or by mistake, um, let's go over clangor and go and you go, thank you very much for that. Um, and, and off you go. The power of the casual chat is, is it's more time consuming and, as you say, less deliberate. But my goodness me, it yields extraordinary results often. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, the best journalists are those who are just really good talkers and spend you know, all of their lives just having those casual chats to people. They're the ones who, who find out the exciting stories. You, you never get the interesting stories by formal arranged interviews uh, set up by PR firms.
<laughs> no. Um, do you, I mean, do you, was, was your goal always to go out and do your own thing? Was journalism ever going to be the end goal for you? Um, uh, you started out in financial journalism at a very mm. tender age, if memory serves. Yeah, I was very lucky. I, I finished uh, at Rhodes and was able to get a place in the graduate training program that um, what was then called BDFM was running, which was Business Day and uh, Financial Mail. Uh, so straight out of Rhodes, I arrived with my BA honours degree in, in economics and, and Peter Bruce, who was then the editor of the Financial Mail after the internship, offered me a proper job um, and kind of threw me in as the banking writer, which in retrospect, I would uh, consider uh, fairly reckless, uh, but it was lucky for me. Uh, you know, there I was uh, in my early 20s uh, with the, the power of the pen over these uh, you know, multi-billion rand institutions. Uh, but but it was, was an extraordinarily exciting time, though, uh, wasn't it? I mean, it was yeah. the time... Uh, of, of the Ned Bank Die Data Incentive exactly. Scheme um, yeah, that Anne Crotty yeah. blew open. Um, that was very, very good. You yeah. also and then... The Ned Bank, uh, Standard Bank merger. I think my that... first press conference was... was, was oh, really? When that got kiboshed. That, because that was an exciting time as well. Um, and also around that time, of course, there was a bank called Regal Treasury Bank um, and you did incredible work on that um, and were recognized mm. for, for that work um, as a newcomer to financial journalism in what was a massively complicated charade. Is that too polite a yeah. word? Yeah, I was reminded of that the other day because my Facebook reminded me of a story I would posted when Jeff Levenstein was sentenced to jail and he had been the CEO of Regal Bank. And yeah. Yeah, it was remarkable when we were writing about that. It's a bank. You know, you, you, you look at it very much uh, from an economics perspective. So you don't like what they're doing with their income statement. You think they're playing games with their share price. You think they are manipulating the balance sheet. Uh, but then you discover, as, as I did for, for years afterwards, the things they've been doing in the background with hiring people to throw petrol bombs at people they thought were leaking information about them. And I mean, it was an incredible criminal enterprise. Um, and Did he ever go to jail? I mean, he was, he, was sentenced yeah. to, he was sentenced to jail. Did he actually spend time in jail? Yeah, he did. So he did spend some quality time behind bars, uh, but but only for uh, the, the white-collar crimes, if you like, the fraud yeah. and so on. And it was in, in uh, the commissions of inquiry later that it came out that he had had me followed He'd hired uh, these sort of ex-apartheid spooks, followed me around. Um, I'd been oblivious to that at the time. Um, because they and, knew what they were doing. Uh, That's the thing. <laughs> they were yeah, good at their well, job. Uh, they must have been so bored because, I mean, you know, it's yeah. not exactly you know, what you were doing was very good journalism, but you weren't exactly being James Bond. Yeah, I mean, there was uh, no great clandestine things. I, you know, I suppose uh, ultimately we were... We were on the hunt for information and we were talking to everybody who we thought might give it to us, including sort of ex-employees and, and, and auditors and, and, and business associates and so on. So I suppose their, their effort was kind of trying to uncover who it was who was giving us information. But, you know, we, we were going everywhere. And the problem is once, you know, if you're doing something, the things that they were up to, it's going to come out, you know, exactly. and uh, uh, 
that was the fundamental problem. They're sort of chasing their tails, trying to keep things buried. It was always going to be in vain. Talk about the switch out of journalism to IntelliDex, because mm. that was a big leap. Mm. Yeah, so I... Um, so I'd been at Financial Mail for uh, seven, uh, seven, eight years. Um, and I think at that point, it had been a great time to be in financial journalism. And, and being a journalist, as you know, is, is just an incredible job. It's just such an exciting place to be because you, you really have influence and you have access. Um, I remember someone saying to me that, that I could probably get an interview with his boss before he could or get a meeting with his boss before he could. And I thought, you know, that's, that would be an arrogant to think, thing to think, but it's probably true. You know, as a, as a journalist in your 20s, you, you have incredible access. So it's, so it's a great way to learn, and it's, and it's an awesome responsibility because journalism plays such a, an important role in a democracy and, and in a market-based economy because markets don't work without reliable information. And financial journalists in particular are, are the, the grease for, for those markets. And if you don't have a vibrant, effective, capable financial press, you really don't have a market-based economy. So it, it was a great privilege and, and, and joy to be a financial journalist. But I think the, the thing that, I guess, drove me to, to leave and set something else up is that I was kind of frustrated about the lack of technical skill that was in financial journalism at that time. You know, I, I felt that we needed sort of real accountants and, and real economists and, and analysts and so on to work with us in gathering information and building insight into companies and, and, and what's really going on. And, and I tried, as, as then I was news editor at Financial Mail, I tried to convince the powers that be that we need to hire some of these people. You know, they, they might not be able to write, but they can certainly delve into financials and, and other information to draw out the stories and insights. But I, I couldn't get much traction. So eventually I thought, you know, I'm going to do this on my own. And I, and I was kind of inspired by uh, something like the Economist Intelligence Unit, something like what Bloomberg had started doing with building more analytical capability as part of its news service. And, and I thought, and I, and I obviously had a much more equities bent than an economics bent. Uh, so I wanted to create a, a kind of equities heavy economist intelligence unit uh, to produce insights and do it in partnership with media outlets. And, and that was our initial starting point. But of course, our timing was couldn't have been worse because it was early 2008 when we ah, perfect, decided yeah. to, to launch a financial kind of research house. <laughs> and then we hit the financial crisis. But, but that must have made you lean and tough and quite resilient. I mean, it sort mm. of makes COVID look like a bit of a Sunday school picnic um, in terms of you know, as far as economic crises go. Yeah. yeah I guess our, our whole business model was to sell investment information to investors in Africa and Within a couple of months, there were there were absolutely no investors interested in anything to do with any investments in in Africa, so we had to adapt pretty quickly. And yeah, we did we did okay. We we built an equities research business in the the early days. We started out producing work in in partnership with with a couple of stockbrokers. It, it took a while before we could actually make make money out of it. I think we started off saying, "Look, just take our research, just just give it to people, and and hopefully they'll like it." And we 
uh, did that for a while, and and eventually we we broke through uh, with a few uh, customers who said, okay, this is worth something to us. So we started to build a, a, a business around that, and I guess it did make us resilient. Uh, it it meant we we always thought. How, what value are we offering here? Who is what? What is the case to a potential client that says this is this is worth something to them that they would pay for it? And I think that that ethos has always stayed with us, and it, and that's crucial in 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 any business that you're starting up. I think when you are planning a business, you kind of naively think, well, this is the great thing I would like to do. I think this would be wonderful. And you quickly learn that it actually doesn't matter what you think. Um, it's quite irrelevant. You've got to figure out what your clients think, and then you've got to give them the thing that they really want and are willing to pay for. You can't go in there with any preconceptions. So we've learned that, I, I guess, in some ways the hard way, but quickly. And we turned things around and focused on, on what our clients needed. Well, if you don't learn it quickly, you don't stay in business. And you have been in business for more than a decade, which is... Quite remarkable, considering the circumstances under which you've you know, you've started and now hit this hit this next curveball. Talk to me about how it has shaped your personal attitude towards money. As a journalist, you would never get to be um, going to be you know, create any value for yourself other than the enormous satisfaction of the job. Um, by by creating your own business, you potentially um, are sitting on an asset that either does have good value or will have good value one day um and that changes mm. the economics of family theobald yeah i guess it does although i i don't sort of like the the common view that you can't make money as a journalist because i don't think that's actually true i think good financial journalists will be successful they'll be as successful as if they'd you know gone and become accountants or other kind of professions so I, I I think that that people shouldn't be scared off from, from financial journalism for that reason. But I think when you start a business, it's you really have two kinds of models. You have a model that says I'm going to build an asset base. It's going to take me a long time, and my assets can be sort of intellectual property or they can be factories or other things. And I'm going to build that asset base and then one day it's going to generate a yield and I can sell it and sail off into the sunset. And the other approach is where you're selling your time. And I think in uh, coming out of journalism, we're very much in a services mindset. You're going to think, what is it that we can do uh, as a service to people? Uh, which really means that you're selling how much time you have to do those things and you only have so many hours in a day. So you're effectively constrained as to what kind of scale you can reach. Um, and it takes a while to start a services business and start to recognize how do you make the, the shift from being confined by how many hours you have a day into building a business that has an asset base that you're now generating a yield out of. And that's been the trick. I think that's how my attitude to, to money or, or how we generate revenue has had to evolve. Um, and you only have a business when it's something that is of value even after you've left it. Um, and I think a lot of people make that mistake when they're starting their own business uh, and it becomes really just them 
and an extension of themselves. Whereas what you really need to be doing is creating something that stands alone without you, because one day that's uh, what it's going to need to do to be a sustainable long-term business that outlives you. Are you you a better analyst, stroke journalist, storyteller about business, um, now that you own your own business? I guess I, I, I must be. It's kind of hard to to sort of imagine. There's all kinds of tacit knowledge you just gain because you've been in the trenches of dealing with certain things. You know, when you talk to people about red tape and we write about South African business being constrained by red tape, yeah. until you've been through the process of actually applying for something like a certificate of compliance with workmen's compensation payments, that you, you just don't know what that's like and what it does to your business. Um, and uh, so, so that, that sort of tacit knowledge just fills your your experience. And, and as you engage with uh, businesses everywhere else, you, you kind of share uh, that that pain <laughs> that you but, but doesn't it then make you too close to your subjects because you feel their pain? You don't, you're not keeping a distance. And I think a lot of journalism yeah. is naive and ignorant of the ways of the world and how tough the world is. Um, and I don't know if that makes better quality journalism than somebody who is in the, the, the pit of despair with everybody yeah. else who can empathize with, with business. Yeah. Or uh, do you have to be just coldly you know, detached from the realities that people are suffering and, and judge it on that basis? I'm sure a mix of both would be better. Um, but I, yeah. I just wonder what is more effective as a valuable teller of stories. There's that tension, I guess. You, it, it's hard not to empathize when you can share the experience of others. Uh, and on the other hand, as a journalist, you need to have a level of detachment. There's that great book, The Journalist and the Murderer, who, uh, I can't remember who by it, Bruce, you might remember. That I don't. And it sets out the, the role of journalism as being a constant process of earning the trust of people and then violating that trust when you, when you effectively kind of sell them in exchange for a good story. <laughs> so I think the, the, having real insight into what's happening in business inevitably brings a, a kind of tendency to empathy. But I think that was hard even before I had a business. That was hard as a financial journalist. It's very hard not to empathize with people whose stories, you know, your, your stories can be destroying their careers. Um, and and I, I think that is a really tough thing for any journalist, irrespective of whether you've been in business and have, uh, and have empathy as a result of that. I, I think just as human beings, we do. Um, but I think you've always got to keep the losers who's, who, who benefit from the work you're doing, you know, people who are on the losing end of things that go on. And your work kind of uh, enables them uh, somewhat, gives them back some power. You've got to keep those people in mind. And I think if you have that balance clear, you find the right line to walk. And insight into business means... You know, you understand both sides of the coin. You understand the challenges of running the business, but you also understand being the victim of of a business that's, you know, done something wrong and and thereby affected negatively its its shareholders, its customers, and so on. And you've got to keep that perspective and, and understand whose interests your your work is mm. is serving, and and you know, stay stay on the right side of of doing good. The Journalist and the Murderer by Janet Malcolm. 
Um, and go. the opening line is, every journalist who is not too stupid or too full of himself to notice what is going on knows that what he does is morally indefensible. He is the kind yeah. of confidence man preying on people's vanity, ignorance or loneliness, gaining their trust and betraying them without remorse. Like the credulous widow who wakes up one day to find out the charming young man and all of her savings gone. So is the consenting subject to a piece of non-fiction writing learns when the article or book repairs his hard lesson. Jeez, like I don't like Janet Malcolm one bit. <laughs> Um, I think there's I mean, some hyperbole there. But you I think get, there may you be. Get the, you get the, get the, the, drift. the point that, that she's making. I do. Um, Stuart, uh, we must go. But thank you so much for taking time out and um, look forward to having you in the country next week um, and uh, hopefully cross, uh, cross paths. Stuart Theobald, of course, who is the co-founder of IntelliDex. He is the executive chairman of IntelliDex, other people's money this evening. If your business is growing and you need funding fast, SME Go is the place to go. Whether you're looking for asset finance, working capital, business loans or more, it's just one easy application online application away visit smego.co.za today and try and find out if your business qualifies and you're good to go smego powered by old mutual old mutual life assurance company limited is a licensed fsp and life assurer